This is Todd Vick, author of The Reconstructing of Your Mind, and you're listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. And now, here's my good friend, Jason Elam. Welcome in, everyone. This is Jason Elam. I'm really excited to have you back for another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. My co-host today describes herself as an ex-evangelical, trying her best to honor real gospel. Uh, she is a purity culture insurgent and a loud, loving, and shaky voice. And I am so grateful to welcome back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Ashley Robbins. Ashley, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me on again. Of course. Well, this time you're co-hosting now, so it's as much your show as it is mine. So, Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can get into some real trouble this time. Great. <laughs> um, all right. So the first season, we did this little thing, this little series on the church we dream of. And it was a lot of thinkers and church leaders or former church leaders talking about the church they wish existed or the church they always wanted to see or always thought we should have. But I really wanted to talk to you because you seem to me somebody who had a lot of hopes for the church early in your life, thought it was going to lead you to, you know, the, I don't know, the idea of a blessed life or, you know, it, if everything that had been fed to you worked out, you thought your life was going to work out a certain way and then it kind of fell apart. And uh, you got hurt in church. And there's so many folks that reach out to me, they hear the podcast saying things like, well, I'm really sorry that some people have bad experiences, but it's not like that for me. And I don't think it's like that for most people. So I wanted to have you on to specifically talk about what went wrong and how could the church have served you better? And what does the church you dream of today look like? So could we talk just in this very initial phase of the conversation? Tell us about the church that you grew up in. What was that church like? Okay. Um, the church that I grew up in was very boring. <laughs> um not not much excitement as far as like uh, worship was like we had the same 10 songs on rotation and uh, there was a basic altar call after a sermon with a man. Uh, no women were allowed to lead at all. It was just boring. It, it was um, lots of rules and not a lot of love and not a lot of like genuine connection with a community. Like you would, you would say like, hey, how you doing? But you wouldn't really stop and like care about other people and how they were really doing a lot of fake insincerities and um, things of that nature. So yeah, there was just not a lot of fostering of a, a safe and loving community there. When you talk about rules, what kind of rules? Like show up to church looking your absolute best, like wear all your fancy shit. And then, you know, you have, you have to come to church every time or else you're looked down upon. You have to take a communion absolutely every Sunday. And if you don't, there are repercussions. They they kind of keep tabs too on like, if you share things on social media that are kind of uh, controversial or anything, they keep tabs on that and they'll have meetings with certain people. They'll kick you out, excommunicate you, all that. Um, if you like kind of make a mistake or choose a life path that they would think is wrong. Participating in so many things too consistently are kind of... Mandatory. So what kind of things would you have to participate in? 
they have this like convention called Labs to Leaders where they have like the kids um, participate in competitions with other church groups uh, in order to win trophies and things like that. And because the women or the girls could not be considered leaders, they had a separate name for the girls. Yes, right? it's called leaderettes. How <laughs> insulting is that? Leaders, leaderettes. Like you never move up to anything else. You're not like a child becoming something or... Yeah, you just... Because you're supposed to be uh, obedient to the boys and submissive to the boys and uh, take care of the boys, make sure that they don't uh, stray and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> it is I can disgusting. Feel your you, energy over there. <laughs> yes, it's it's enraging. But apparently, you were pretty good at it, right? You had a bunch of trophies. Oh, I had so many trophies. I had so many. Because I, I wanted to do well. I wanted to follow all those rules because I really thought that that meant um, getting into heaven and making God happy and making Him love me. So. I tried my best to be involved as much as possible with everything and uh, try to um, do like my own kind of like charity work on the side. Like I used to crochet hats and scarves and stuff. And uh, I think we sold them for money to send to an orphanage in Honduras or something. There's the rules. <laughs> so it, it seems a little bit controlling. There was the weight of the expectations. You had to be here. You had to act right. You had to submit to the boys. What was the theology like? What were the views of God in that church? How, how did you see God growing up there? Um, so God was a very distant creature to us. God was just uh, this lingering evil deity, honestly. Um, we say that he's all loving. You know, we... we say like, these are not the seats of shame, but the rows of redemption when you come forward for the altar call. But honestly, it's just a place for a lot of condemnation towards you and your suffering. There's not any room for struggle, like just basic human struggle in that kind of church environment that I grew up in. It's adhere to the rules or you fall short and it's all over. You're done. There's no coming back for you. There's no... Uh, unless you like completely transform, have a metamorphosis into this entirely new human with a new identity. But yeah, God was just hateful. And he's that wrathful God of the Old Testament, the the one that encourages you know rape and uh, genocide and all those horrible things. So kind of a God is love, but don't piss him off mentality. Yes. Yes. Like he's so, God is love, but he is vengeful. He is wrathfully righteous, I think is how it was put to me. So, it's so sad. And it was very like, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance for me as a kid trying to come to grips with that. It's like, okay, yeah, he loves me. But, you know, if I think about kissing a boy or something, then I'm going to get kicked out of heaven and he's going to hate me and he's going to label me as some whore and a horrible person, a horrible friend and daughter. And (laughs) this all seems so obscure to me now because that's just, I can't believe that my parents let me believe such bullshit and like encourage me to take part in it. I know that they were probably just as misled as I was, but I just, I don't understand that, how you can let your kids grow up in that kind of environment. So at what point did you just kind of come to the point where you just 
thought to yourself, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I mean, the point in which I decided to leave was I, I label myself the deconstructing divorcee a lot because I, I divorced my husband who was abusive and sexually assaulted me and abused me. And I didn't get to leave the church really on my own terms. I was kind of forced out because they didn't like when they found out that I got divorced for reasons that they didn't like. I didn't have enough proof for them that he was an ungodly man. So they were like, you need to just submit more. You just need to, you need to have more faith. Like a lot of biblical prescriptions that I just couldn't, I couldn't subscribe to that anymore because I was starting to actually unveil my worth as a person um, on my own outside of church. And I was like, I don't think that this is what Jesus died for, honestly. Like, if this is what he died for, this is, it was in vain. And I guess I'm going to hell, but I'm in good company, you know? So how long did you live under the weight of that? How long were you married? I was married for about two years. So not very long. And how... It, if you don't want to discuss any of this, obviously that's completely fine. I'm assuming because you're here and because we're friends, you're okay with talking about yeah. it, but that that's that's up to you. <laughs> um, how long into that two years did the abuse start? Um, honestly, it was after the first month or two. Um, we didn't really have like a honeymoon phase or anything. I mean, we got married in a gas station. I'm, I'm not joking. I signed papers in a gas station with him. Wow. We didn't exchange vows. We didn't, nothing like that. So (laughs) that sounds really horrible. It's embarrassing, but yeah. It it began shortly after that because I I was out of a job where we lived. He was the breadwinner and it was very like, I needed to cater to him and all of his needs all the time, you know, which I was happy with, you know, I could be a housewife and I did a, a pretty good job at that, I think. And I catered to him every whim. But at a certain point, I just stopped being enough for him. And there was just a lot of... It began with just verbal abuse. And then um, we moved back to Alabama. We lived in Tennessee at the beginning of our relationship. So we moved back to Alabama where I was able to go back to school and get a job. He lost his job. And I was the full-time breadwinner, took care of the house, went to school full time. And I think he had just some like pent up resentment towards me because I was the provider. And it started to turn into more like physical... He never beat me or anything. He would throw things around me and break things around me. But And then I believe that he started to struggle a lot with uh, a porn addiction And that kind of like those types of fantasies started to roll over into our marriage. And I think that's when sexual abuse began. So, and I I stayed that way for, I think, eight or nine months before um, he ended up leaving. Were you able to say anything to your family or anyone back at your church about needing help? I confided a lot in my family. My church didn't have any room at the table for me, honestly. my hurt was not really valid there because it was just like, this is what it means to be a wife. You, you do everything for them. You keep them on the right track. You try to help make them a better person, no matter what the cost kind of thing. So I I knew I wouldn't uh, get any support 
from my church family necessarily. So I sought out help from my mother and mostly my mother's family. And the support there was a lot of the same kind of religious prescriptions. But at the same time, my uh, mom was kind of like, I don't think this is good. I think you might need to cut cut off this relationship, at least temporarily, for your own sanity and safety. I never let them fully know all the abuse because I made a lot of excuses for him too. So I'm partially to blame for that. Not everyone was in the loop because I thought it was my fault. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think that's your fault. You know, withholding information is not your fault either. You were trying the best you could to keep a relationship going uh, because you knew the consequences of it failing, right? So, a hundred percent. It was just uh, honestly, after going through therapy, I think that it was a protection device that I had conjured up for myself because I really I was just trying to survive the situation. And I did everything that I could with the resources that I had. And I can extend grace to myself for you know the situation and what it was. All right. So you, you come to the end of it. You can't do it anymore. Uh, you, I think you said he left. Is that right? He left. He packed up um, most of the stuff that was in our house when I left for a weekend to go stay with my mother. Yeah, but he ended up leaving and taking most of the stuff in the house and left for Tennessee. About a week later, he ended up coming back, I think. And then I was asking him, you know, let's let's go to therapy. Let's let's work something out, you know. But he was kind of done with it. And I was like, well, uh, I'm not going to fight for this anymore. I think this is a major sign from the gods or whatever. So I went and filed for divorce and I served him myself. Okay. And so what was your family's reaction when you said... Uh, I'm getting a divorce. Mm, my grandparents weren't super happy about it. My mom was, she's okay with it, but she was very quick to tell me, you know, you can never get married again. You can never date again. This is it. This is it for you. And that was the one thing that kind of, <sighs> I was willing to accept it at the time because I was still wanting to please God. I was like, you know, I, I understand I had a certain obligation as a wife and I didn't want to give up on this, but because I, I have, uh, that means that I I can't start over and I don't have enough evidence to say like that he cheated or something where it makes it justifiable to marry again, date again. And, and that was devastating for me because I had always really wanted to be a wife and a mom and just have my own family in a traditional way kind of thing. So I imagine that that was like an extremely difficult season of your life. Um, A a season when you really need your family and your church to rally around you and, and help you realize that, you know, there is life beyond this. Yes. And I so wanted to reach out to my church. Like I so wanted that because I knew certain people that had been divorced in the church. They had remarried and everything and I didn't know their situations, but I just wanted to not feel so alone. I didn't want anybody else to hurt with me necessarily, but I did want someone to see that I was hurting and see that I was walking alone. Yes. Sarah Bessie wrote years ago that there was not room in the church for her grief. Yes. I heard that on one of the podcasts when I first started listening to it. 
And that yeah. just hit home. So like it still resonates so powerfully within me that there is no room. I think of that table. God, what is that painting? It's the, the Last Supper painting. Yeah. Um, and I think of that table and I think everyone is there but me. And that was always like my visual, like there's not really room here for me. So I'm just going to sit on the floor to the side. All right. So you wanted to reach out to your church. You didn't feel like you could. Yeah. Did you ever go back after the divorce? I did go back. I actually took my boyfriend Noah <laughs> um, to church with me a couple of times. And that was when I really got the reaction that like cemented the idea that you are not welcome here. This is not your husband. You are forever married in the eyes of God to that man. And this is not him. And this is not okay. So I got mostly a lot of looks, um, a lot of like energy shifts towards me. But there were a few people that kind of came up to me and were like, what are you doing? What is this? So that cemented to me that you cannot come back to this church I sought out going to other churches as well after this, uh, thinking that it would probably be different. But it was all kind of the same. I mean, everyone has their own cliques. It's hard to like fit into a church, especially if you haven't been there for like the... If you didn't grow up there or you weren't there when the church was like kind of born kind of thing. So um, I, I could never find my way in anywhere, at least not permanently. So you... You showed up with your boyfriend at church and got the message very quickly that that was not going to be tolerated. Because in the doctrine of the church, if you've ever been married, you're always married to that person. That, I'm trying to wrap my head around <laughs> the uh, legalism involved. I don't even know where that came from. But yeah, that that was definitely what, what they always have thought and what I've been taught. I, I'm not really sure where they derive that in scripture. I'm, I don't know if you can think of anything. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a passage that a lot of people will take, you know, completely, of course, out of context and and say that if you're divorced and you remarry, then you're committing adultery and, and more importantly, causing the man to commit adultery with you. Yes, that's it. Yes, yeah. So you're sending, you're making someone else sin. Right, yeah, which always seems to be the burden, right? For the girls, especially, right? If you dress a certain way, you make the boys sin. Yes. If you don't give the boys what they need from you, you're making them sin. If they start to go astray and you're with them, then it's it's on you because you, you weren't leading them correctly. You weren't helping to guide them towards God or Jesus or that kind of thing. Were you ever made to feel guilty for your husband's porn addiction or porn? Yes. Babbling? Oh my okay. God. I, yes. It, it was told to me that I was not catering to his every sexual desire, which was so not true. That I mean, there were times that I just, you know, would give in to him and I really didn't want to have sex. I didn't, uh, you, you don't want to have sex with someone that's not nice to you. Uh, typically, that's just not really the case. And that's exactly how I felt. So it was very, I felt trapped by that because I didn't want him to lean on porn like that. But I also didn't know what more I could give him to like uh, satisfy that desire that he had. But you know, now I know that the porn addiction had nothing to do with me. It was a lot of things probably trapped in him that he was trying to reconcile, which I hope by now he has. <laughs> God, I hope he has. So you basically the idea in the church was, okay, we can still tolerate you. We can let you in the door as a divorced woman. <laughs> 
Yes. We can let you but, in, but don't don't date. But don't you dare start dating anybody. No. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so you show up with your boyfriend and people are like, what are you doing? Um, how, how did your family respond to a boyfriend? Family was very, um, they liked him. They were like, he's a great person, but you don't need to do this to him, Ashley. You don't need to lean him on this way. You don't need to do this. Because you're never going to be able to marry yes. him. Yeah. Okay. They were, especially gotcha. because Noah is much older than me. So they were like, you know, he's probably looking to settle down. And I was like, yeah, I am too. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> but um, they they were not on board with that at all for the most part. I want to turn this around on you though, Jason. Can I can okay, ask you sure. something? Yes. Yes, you can. So you going through your own divorce, you're still serving in the church at the time that you got divorced. Is that right? Right up until right before the divorce I had been, yeah. Okay. What, what kind of happened after that? Well, for me, it was like one of those things where, you know, I was in a Southern Baptist um, Mm -hmm. situation. I had been serving in some non-denominational churches, but still very much in the Southern Baptist stream. And the Southern Baptist stream is there are, you know, you do not come back from a divorce. You don't get divorced and especially you don't get remarried and then come back to ministry. And if you do, it has to have been 20 years ago. And, you know, we'll, we'll uh, sweep things under the rug that are not obvious mm. or currently a factor in your life. But somebody with joint custody of their daughter uh, doesn't get called to be a Southern Baptist pastor. See, and so you had a whole other like um, stream involved with that with your kids too, mm-hmm. you know? So right. that's, that's really difficult to navigate. I just wondered how how it was for you on the flip side because you're a male and in in the church surveying. So didn't know if that was any different for you. I think it is in some degree because I had been in a couple of non-denominational churches. I mean, the reality is, I mean, Brandy and I got married. Uh, that's my current wife. Uh, you know that, but every listener may yeah. not because um, <laughs> you know Brandy. <laughs> uh, but we, we, almost immediately planted a church for people who got kicked to the curb by other churches for whatever reason. And I think it was easier for me as a man because nobody questions a man who just says, God's called me to start a church. That's true. (laughs) Now there may be Baptists out there or people from my background who would say, oh yes, but he has this in his history. Mm. Um, But I wasn't there to reach them anyway. So I didn't care if they said that, you know, I mean, that that wasn't on my radar at all. Yeah, that wasn't your demographic for sure. It really wasn't. No, I didn't care. So I think it was easier for me. Plus, I was older um, when I went through my divorce and I had a lot of family support. I was shocked by how many people said something to the effect of, we always knew what you were going through. Oh, wow. Wow. Even though, I mean, I never talked about it. And I made a point, especially during the most abusive times. And I was, I mean, I was literally getting physically abused. I mean, um, when I left, it was after I got clocked over the head with one of those wooden paper towel racks. Oh my God. No. Yeah. And so um, when I got to that point, you know, um, and, and I actually started to open up about what had happened once I left. And people were like, yeah, we knew. You know, we, we saw the scratch marks on your arms. We saw the bruises. We saw, I mean, at one point, my, my wrist got broken. Damn. Wow. 
See, but you have like a real reason though. So like I didn't have a good enough reason because... Of course you did. Of course you did. Of course did. I did. But, I, but, but to them. In the, let me yeah. rephrase. In the eyes of the church, I did not have a good enough reason because I didn't yeah. come to church with bruises. I, I That was pretty much it really because sexual abuse doesn't exist in a marriage in the church um, because I'm supposed to... The, the women are supposed to cater to the man no matter what, you know, that your body is theirs kind of thing, but theirs is never yours. <laughs> um, oh. So that didn't count when I, I couldn't come to them and say, um, my husband has raped me because they were like, rape doesn't exist in a marriage. Sex is part of the deal. Move on. What's the next thing? Verbal abuse. So infuriating. Yeah. Um, you can't prove that. So. All right, I'm going to ask you a really weird question. I'm ready. Okay, uh, you are obviously you you do hair, right? <laughs> you are a stylist yes. and a very good one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, but you also are a makeup artist. Yes, sir. Yeah. I have seen you post a lot of pictures of yourself with uh, you know made up bruises and wounds. Yes. Do you think any of that is you trying to provide the evidence of the pain that you went through? I mean, are you trying to illustrate for people the damage that was done to you? Absolutely. There's actually a picture on here um, that I had done some bruising on my neck, um, Mm -hmm. specifically that kind of looked like hand marks. And I did that on purpose uh, because I was... That was kind of when I was in the thick of my um, PTSD therapy too. Yeah. Um, having to recount specific traumatic experiences with um, my ex-husband. So at a certain point, um, I don't know if this is TMI, but at a certain point during the sexual abuse, I was choked so violently that I couldn't breathe. But it never left an actual like bruising. I had redness, but no bruising necessarily. So... There was there was no proof of it, you know, and so I, through this, I was showing everywhere that he had touched me, that hurt and, you know, was harmed. So yeah, a hundred percent. I try to, um, I guess, illustrate that type of pain in some of my um, makeup uh, artistry. How did therapy help you? I guess I always knew it wasn't my fault. But therapy had to kind of unearth that part of me that was willing to um, accept that this you couldn't have done anything different. You couldn't have stopped what happened. You couldn't have changed anything about it. Because I really just needed to accept that I was hurt, regardless that there was there there were no marks left on me, and that that hurt was still valid, and it was enough for me to leave. And that I stayed around so long because I was just trying to keep myself alive. So it kind of helped me to come to grips with that because I was mad at myself for a long time. I was like, why did you let him? Why didn't you? Uh, you should have dot, dot, dot. All these things that I would tell myself, the inner critic would just beat me up all the time. And I just had to kind of extend grace and say, you were just a kid trying to survive. Honestly, you got married at 19. You didn't know what the fuck you were doing. And it's right. okay. Who, who could? Yeah, really? Yeah. I mean, even now, my frontal lobe is not fully developed. I shouldn't be making big decisions. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you finally get the courage to advocate for yourself and say, I'm going to have the life that I want. How does your family respond to that? Like when you say, but I I do want to have relationships after divorce. There is life after the divorce. And I believe that that God loves me exactly as I am. Well, my, my family is still not really on board with that. But I've just kind of had to set the boundaries with them and just say, it's okay that you don't believe that. but And you can be at peace with that. But I'm going to be at peace with the life I know that I could have, I should have, and I will have. Because they're all still very, um, I hate to say brainwashed, but honestly, that's the truth. Still brainwashed by the whole toxic religious system and taking the Bible a little too literally and just setting those old, those old rules that I grew up with. So just having to tell them, you know, you can be at peace with your law, but I'm making a new law for myself because I can accept me right where I am, just as Jesus accepts me right where I am. But they don't like to hear that. (laughs) They don't like that Jesus. Right, because you're obviously headed straight for hell. Yes, I I am on the path. And and having a good time on the way. (laughs) I think I'm holding Jesus on the way. (laughs) I mean, they don't like to hear that I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm not a Christian. I'm just... I'm just friends with them. I just know him and he knows me. They, they don't like that. They're like, that's not that's not what Christianity is. Well, Jesus isn't a Christian. so Right, yeah. All right, so let's talk about that. The church, as we've heard now for the last 30 minutes, um, has not served you very well. And as someone who was instrumental in not the church that you grew up in, but in churches like it, where legalism was prevalent, it was my job to preach in a way that got people to respond, to got people to get people to quit asking questions, to get people back in line, to get under authority, to get under their covering, their spiritual covering of their pastors and their elders and their leaders in their church. Uh, it was my job to do that for a while. I literally got paid by the federal government to go into into public schools and tell kids not to have sex before they got married, or it would change the uniqueness about them, that they would lose something they could never get back. Mm -hmm. And so I want to say to you and to everyone else who is listening today uh, from your shoes, I am so sorry for my part in feeding a machine that hurt you so badly. And... I wish that I could go back and do things very differently. But the church that exists today is so far from the church that I hoped existed before I got old and cynical. (laughs) How do we get back to that, Ashley? From where we are now, how do you think we can... Is the church just a lost cause or can a church exist that actually helps people? Well, first of all, Jason, I, w- I want to thank you for that. Not that I don't think that you owe anybody an apology necessarily. I think your life is a reflection of the apology. <laughs> I definitely appreciate that. But I don't think that we can get back anywhere. I think what we might could do is just burn the whole, <laughs> burn the whole system, uh, throw, throw the dynamite in the building, and start over. 
with genuine community. Because right now, church to me just looks like a structure of money and power and control over people and their behavior and um, even their thoughts, which we literally cannot control our thoughts. So part of me thinks maybe we should let the church die out because it's kind of going that way, honestly. Um, With so many younger people um, kind of moving towards deconstruction, I feel like church is on the way out anyway. It's it's dying. Congregations are losing people every day. And I feel like that's kind of a good thing, as sad as it is, because I know church is supposed to be, it's supposed to be something good. It's supposed to be genuine and generous and a safe place for people. But at this point, I think it's okay to let it kind of die out and then start over. I like how Keith Giles does the house churches, you know, and that kind of thing. I think those are really effective. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. Because they're just genuine community. That's what every human wants. They want to feel loved. They want to feel seen and heard. And what better way to do that than just be a friend to somebody, you know, just be a good friend to people. As simple as that is, I really think that should be the basic template. I feel like right now what we're doing here is church. So I, I'm i not sure if, if... I know that's kind of idealistic to say like, let it burn down and let's just start over. But honestly, I can't see any other progress coming than that. Right, yeah. And I mean, Jesus kind of gave us that heads up, right? He, he had that line about you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. Yes. And it feels like that's what we tried to do. We took the, the, the old uh, religious temple system and tried to Christianize it when it's all about relationships. It's about love. It's not about control. It's not about money. It's not about building a, a kingdom of our own. And so why do we think that going back to that is going to yield the results that we're looking for? I I think too, like we're not ever going to get to go back to that like genuine community until we kind of let go of scripture, not completely throw it out or anything because it's very, it's honorable to, you know, research scripture and uh, take, take the good from it. But I think as long as we take it really literally see things black and white and don't really understand the premise of basic teachings in it, we're just going to keep going back into this old cycle and learning, like relearning the whole order of worship and wear your best suit and tie to church and have one person stand up there and tell you what they think the Bible is saying and how they believe you should live your best life. Because I think scripture obviously has a lot to do with it, but I don't think a lot of people are ready to have the conversation that scripture is not, it's not what we were taught when we were kids. Right. Well, and as long as the book is more important than the person sitting next to us, we have a real problem. Absolutely. And it feels like that's what's happened, right? I mean, we, we put a book and a building and an organization above the people in front of us. And when, when the survival of the organization becomes the thing that we focus the most on, people are going to get hurt in that process. And is that not idolatry? To put, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> to put a building and um, a book up there like that. I mean, it, even Jesus would say, "You've heard it was said, but I say to you, you know, like throw out what you've heard, throw out literally all arguing with the Old Testament." Yes. yes, like that's that's so powerful, and we just overlook that, or at least 
when I was growing up, that was kind of overlooked. The red letters didn't didn't ring much power. But let me tell you, those uh, books that gave us all of our rules th- that was that was heaven or hell right there. I heard somebody recently. <laughs> they were, you know, it was it was somebody who's very um, into the Second Amendment, mm-hmm. right? Very right to bear arms, yeah. and somebody asked them because they were talking about you know, American Christian right to bear arms. That was kind of their platform that they stood for. And somebody said, well, didn't Jesus say, you know, those who live by the sword will die by the sword and, uh, you know, love your enemies and never return evil for evil. And, and then started quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, God. And the person's <laughs> response was, uh, okay, I'm going to be honest. This is Donald Trump Jr. that I'm, I'm quoting right okay. now. Um, who said... I always thought that was the weakest part of Jesus' argument. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Now, but that that perfectly encapsulates almost every church I grew up in. Yeah. Because we majored on the stuff that gave us control and built the kingdom for ourselves. But we hate that stuff that makes us vulnerable. See, we can't stand to be vulnerable because that's when genuine like feelings and community starts to, you know start to root itself. I was going to say something too about kind of all the rules that we were talking about earlier. Um, I have a quote from Henry David Thoreau. It's any fool can make a rule and any fool will mind it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Um, That kind of, (laughs) I heard that quote on a podcast the other day and I was like, damn, if that's not the church, not to say that everybody who is a Christian is a fool, but it's like, right. Of course. It's like you can plant all these rules all you want over your whole life, over everybody else's life. But until you just kind of um, set that aside and say, I'm a person who's hurting. Can you raise your hand if you're with me and see everybody else raising their hand? Like nothing, nothing is going to come from your rules. Yeah, nothing's going to come to the rules. You just need that sense of community and love in a safe place. I'm a broken record. So, <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all bears repeating, right? Okay, so you said earlier that you thought Keith Giles, our buddy, was on to something with the house church model. He and a lot of other people who espouse the house church model. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a part of a house church yourself? I'm not. And I don't even know exactly how a house church, like I've tried to think over it in my head. I'm like, how do they even work? Because do you not have like a set order of worship? Like I'm so, I'm still in the black and white of the church that I was in. I'm kind of afraid to go to a house church. (laughs) I'm afraid of anything with the word church in it um, because I've been so traumatized, um, which is sad because I think I'd really like to try to open myself up to that again. But like, how do you not, how do you not accidentally go back to the whole like specific order, like song, prayer, sermon, one person kind of thing. And I like, I liked how Keith talked about it on the podcast where it just seemed to be kind of, I guess like an open discussion. Yeah. But I'm just afraid it would just lead back to other things too. 
Well, and I think that there is always the risk of that, right? Because so many of us are so steeped in that. And while we may have walked away from it, we've all walked away from it for different reasons. And there may be parts of it that some of us liked and want to go back to. And so we just try to hijack the uh, the house church meeting and turn it into the parts we liked of church. Yes. See, that's what I'm afraid of happening. And I feel like I would be one of those people that would end up accidentally going backwards because um, I still can't. Uh, it's It's been... T- Two or three years since I've picked up a Bible, I still can't do it because I read it and I just get triggered. And maybe I just need more time. You know, I'm obviously not the person to start up a house church because God knows I'd fuck it up. (laughs) But I think you'd be the perfect person to start a house church (laughs) because you have such a strong bullshit detector (laughs) and such a strong uh, filter. Uh, um, not filter, a strong resentment towards the stuff that was so destructive about the old model. Um, but you have a genuine love of people. And I think you have um, a genuine acceptance of yourself. So the, the house church doesn't get built on shame and condemnation, which is key. You've got grace for who you used to be. Um, I don't think anybody's an ideal candidate to start a house church, but I don't see any reason in the world that you shouldn't. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I'm pretty transparent. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I think that's the key to a house church. Now, years ago, back in 2006, I was still pastoring a traditional church, mm-hmm. uh, still in my first marriage at that time. Um, but I needed a break. I had, I mean, religion was smothering me. And I met an old hippie <laughs> who uh, had moved from California to Alabama and had started a coffee shop uh, in Coleman. And after we had a few conversations, we really hit it off. I loved his nonviolence. I loved the whole peace aspect of the coffee house. And I literally just said to him, you know, what would you think about a church meeting here? <laughs> and so on Thursday nights, we just started doing a house church in a coffee house. And it was just, it was like you were talking about, it was a wide open conversation. Anybody could chime in. There was no preacher, no teacher. We did have somebody come and lead a few songs, just kind of like an icebreaker. Yeah. But um, one of my friends who came to check it out, he had been part of the house church movement for years and years and years. And uh, afterwards I was like, well, what'd you think? And he's like, dude, you have a worship leader. House churches aren't supposed to have those. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't know. I've never seen it. You know, I didn't know how that was supposed to be. No, yeah. But that is so refreshing, that that experience with, with the hippie. That's just, that's so beautiful. I love that. Well, and I, he's become like, one of my heroes. I mean, he, I think he's like probably had more spiritual impact on me than anybody else probably in my life. Um, and we still communicate from time to time. Um, wow. And that he doesn't even own the coffee house anymore. And that, that church, it was called organic church <laughs> and it lasted a couple of years and then it, you know, it, it served its purpose and it, it moved on. Honestly, I think we, it got too big. Um, we, uh, the Birmingham news came one night and oh, wow. took pictures and wrote a, an article about it. And I think word got out and that one night, like 60 people showed up, uh, which is way too big for that coffee house and way too big. I mean, how do you have an open conversation with 60 people? That, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's when you start the small groups. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, I was just like, all right, you're pretty good at this. Why don't you go start one at your house, you know, and just multiply that way. 
but I don't think there has to be a, a set ritual or a certain way you do it. I think some nights one person's going to need to talk more than other people just because they're going through it. And I mean, God, wouldn't church be better if it was more like an AA meeting? That's what I'm thinking, like group therapy, you know? Like yes. that, that seems to make more sense um, and offer a safer environment than church. <laughs> wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, I, you said you said something about it had served its purpose. Yeah. I kind of like that as far as what if, what if that's kind of, what if that's kind of what church could be, should be? Yeah. Right. Like, I think that's a big part of it. We don't know when to let things die. Yeah. See, that's, um, I don't know. A light bulb went off when you said that. And I was like, what if it's not, Every Sunday, we have to do this the rest of our lives. What if it just serves its purpose for a bit? Uh, I mean, I don't know. That Maybe that's just something to marinate on for a bit. Yeah, I think that's definitely... I mean, we need things for a season, right? And our seasons change. Mm-hmm. For sure, because we're always changing. And so maybe it's okay for those groups to come and go. Um, even Keith will tell you, I mean, he loves the house church model. But the group that he had in California, he's never been able to replicate that since he left California. Yes. Yeah, because the demographic always changes and everybody right. else changes. Like, I mean, Keith changes too. Uh, we all do Absolutely. every single day. There's always an evolution of our mind and body and spirit. So I, I just think maybe that's something to kind of take with us and think on just the whole something being there for a season and helping us to flourish a little bit more and then moving on to something, maybe not something better or bigger or something, but just something different. So that's yep. really interesting. Absolutely. Yep, it is to me too. All right, so wrapping up, because I've taken <laughs> an hour of your time already, how do you think of yourself today? What do you know today that you didn't know about yourself five years ago? I didn't know I could be actually noticed and loved and understood. I didn't think I was worth it. I didn't think I was, I guess, enough to even like look into. But honestly, I just, yeah, I I never thought that I could genuinely be loved. I mean, I kind of said it on the other podcast, like when I first messaged you and you were like, you told me just so genuinely, just outright, I hope you know that you're loved. Like you really are. And I could not accept that. I could not. I sat with that discomfort of, of, what do you mean I'm loved? What does that even mean? Like, nobody actually loves me. Nobody actually knows me enough to love me. But with enough spiritual encounters outside of church and scripture, I can firmly, not even shakily, say that I am genuinely loved, made of love. And I, I think I'm... I think I'm ready to fully love others in that way. So you know that you're loved. What What's the future hold for you? What's next for you? I mean, what can you do today knowing that you're loved that you couldn't have done five years ago? Mm, I, ha- I have much better interactions with people. I'll say that even if it's just like somebody in a parking lot or a grocery store or something. Like I, I just have better interactions with people because... I'm confident in myself. Uh, I'm self-assured. I feel like I'm kind of able to um, love people right where they are and make them feel valued right then and there in the moment. 
I wasn't really able to do that before. I've always been outgoing. I'll, I can make a friend in five seconds, but I wasn't able to actually really connect with them on a deeper level that quickly until now, I think. And, and to put a ribbon on this conversation, will you let our friends listening know what happened to those trophies that you got from Leaderettes and, and Bible Drill and all that? Absolutely. Um, all of those trophies uh, and my sister's trophies too, because she, she honestly had a lot more than me. She allowed me to break all of hers as well as I broke all of mine. I just, and not in a peaceful way. It was like throwing them on my basement concrete floor and kind of listening to angry emo music and just knowing that that person that I was is dead and that system to me is dead and that is not who God is. And I think that really was, that was hell on earth to me. So yeah, they're all destroyed and they are probably um, burning at the dump right now. So (laughs) Awesome. I love that story. Well, and it's almost like it's like you came full circle, right? I mean, those were things that they that you were taught to be proud of, that they were achievements that made you more acceptable um, in your church and in the eyes of, of what, what you were told were the eyes of God. Um, but you don't need those anymore. Absolutely. That's not the real treasure. You are the trophy. Yes. You are the treasure. You are the love of God incarnate. And so you don't need all that stuff anymore. And so I'm just, I, I, please don't think I'm being condescending. I promise you I am not. But I am so proud of you for the way that you take on, the way that you've taken on um, the abuse in your past, the pain, the bullshit, all of it. And you've done it with so much love and um, grace and I know with a whole lot of righteous indignation, a lot of anger sometimes. Um, but I'm just really proud of you for the way that you are owning your voice and taking agency of your life. And I can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you, Jason. God, you made me tear up. I really appreciate that coming from you because you've really helped to shape me in this whole... Well, not even shape me, but just kind of help me break my chains and break out of that cage. So I really appreciate you. I think everybody needs somebody in their life that reminds them that they don't need anybody's permission to be who they are. Yes. And so if we get to do that for some people, then man, that's the good stuff right there. We have served our purpose. That's what life's all about. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so you know that Brandy and I both, we think of you, you are family. I mean, I'm trying to figure out if you're just like our oldest adopted kid or my baby sister (laughs) or what. So I'm not exactly sure how you fit into the family yet, but your family. And so um, I I am really excited about your future and what uh, is yet to come. Your story, your best days are yet to come. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. I I definitely feel like you guys are family. We were separated for so long, but we are definitely family. I really appreciate you, honestly, and Brandy. (laughs) We love you. I love you guys too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. If you found it meaningful, please rate and review the show on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or joining our listener-exclusive Messy Conversations group on Facebook. Finally, check out Jason's weekly Pathios column at MessySpirituality.org. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with another new episode.